Presenting Real Christians of Genius. Real Christians of Genius. Today we salute you, Mr. Christianese speaking person. Mr. Christianese speaking person. When conventional wisdom said no one can understand what you're communicating, you dared to prove them wrong. Dared to prove them wrong. You knew your neighbor didn't know words like trinity, salvation, and eschatology, but you overused them anyway. You can't stop when people told you what they believed, you had the guts to laugh in their face and wish them luck in everlasting retribution. You gotta be so stand proud, chosen one. Yea, though your words confuse the masses, thou knoweth what thy meaneth. All right. <laughs> Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Well, tonight we come to the final part of our church family covenant, and perhaps it is the most important part of what it means to truly belong to the family of God, spreading the influence of our church to those who have yet to find their way back to the Father. And we do this so badly, don't we? Real Christians of genius. <laughs> now, Mr. Christianese speaking person, you knew that your neighbor didn't understand words like Trinity, salvation, and eschatology, but you overused them anyway. Love that. You can't stop me now, you know? <laughs> we laugh, but God winces. Because every time we go out of this place as his children, as, as brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, we are actually representing him to the lost people of this world. And scripture says that for, for some reason, God has chosen to make his appeal through us, to use you and me to make himself known to the men and women who are far away from him, but whom he cares deeply about and longs to have back in his family. And I've butchered it, and you've butchered it. <laughs> if you've been in evangelical church for any amount of time, you're likely familiar with the E word, evangelism, right? Which simply means communicating to people the message of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Now, maybe you've taken a class on it. Maybe you've read a book. Maybe you carry around a little booklet, you know, in your pocket so you can remember the main, you know, three or four points. Or, or maybe you've tried telling friends about Christ, but it's not gone well. So perhaps you've just, you know, given it up altogether. You know, ah, there are people who have that, like, gift. That's just not me. And because it's gone so badly for so many of us, many Christians have retreated into one of three positions. And the first one is just avoiding outsiders, you know. Just, just, just say nothing at all to our non-Christian friends and neighbors. Don't, don't like mention you don't, you know, that you go to church or anything about what Jesus means to you. You know, it's like too easily misunderstood. The caricatures in the mainstream media certainly don't help. So you don't want to, I mean, you don't want to come across as some like right-wing zealot. These are touchy times. And so faith is best left privatized, right? I mean, if people ask about my faith, maybe. But I don't advertise it. Best to avoid outsiders. Now, the second corollary to that position is stick with insiders. Only invest in relationships with, with other believers, those who, like, understand the lingo. Other church people. I mean, we're called to community, aren't we? And, and that's where it's safest. 
among other believers. I got my small group. I, I got the guy in the pew next to me, my Bible study at work. The brethren, that's, that's where it's at, you know. Don't, don't have a lot of non-Christian friends. Keep to your spiritual family. That's a second position many Christians take. And the problem is, is that it often naturally leads us to the third one, which is to retreat into the Christian bubble, the Christian ghetto, as it were, which is designed to pretty much cut off all outside contact with the secular world. And in its place, we build our own little kind of mirror of the culture, this like parallel universe where everything is Christianized. I actually read an incredible article about this phenomenon. Of all places, it was published in GQ magazine. It was written by Walter Kern. He's a secular journalist. He sometimes writes for the New York Times. And he wanted to do, he's a, he's a non-believer, he wanted to do a little investigative reporting and spend seven days and seven nights totally immersed in the Christian subculture. So for 20 hours a day, for one full week, he listened exclusively to Christian radio, listened only to Christian music, read Christian magazines, watched religious TV, visited churches, and basically slummed around in the Christian ghetto. And what he discovered is what he calls... Ark culture, A-R-K, like Noah's Ark. That is, he said, for those believers who retreat into the bubble of Christendom, there exists two of everything. There's the secular original, and then there's the Christian version that duplicates it. So that Christians never have to leave the bubble to engage actually with the original culture. Listen to what he wrote. He says, today I will leave behind the fallen world of secular American pop culture and enter the self-contained parallel universe of American Christian pop culture, within which I vowed to dwell exclusively for seven days and nights, watching PAX TV instead of NBC, and letting Pat Robertson be my Tom Brokaw. Now he journaled this. Day one, I wake aboard the ark. The old ark, the biblical ark, constructed to save the chosen from the great flood, had two of every creature in existence. The new ark, the cultural ark, built to save the chosen from the great media flood, also has two of everything I'm learning. You say you're a Pearl Jam fan. Then check out Third Day. They sound just like them. Same soaring guttural vocals, same driven musicianship, same crappy clothes. Just a slightly different message. Repent. You say you like John Grisham and Clancy-style potboilers? Grab a copy of the Left Behind novels. Same stick figure characterizations. Same preschool prose. Just a slightly different moral. Repent. Your kids enjoy Batman, you say. Try Bible Man. Say <laughs> He's got a snail, doesn't he? <laughs> same mask, same cape, just a slightly different, you get the idea. That's the convincing logic of the arc, Kern writes. If a person is going to waste his life cranking the stereo, clicking the remote, reading paperback pulp, and chasing diet fads, he may as well save his soul while he's at it. Holy living no longer requires self-denial. On the arc... Every mass diversion has been cloned, from internet news sites to MTV to action movies, and it's possible to live inside the bubble without unplugging oneself from modern life 24 hours a day. Pretty incredible to read an outsider's perspective on how many of us actually really retreat into this Christian bubble and sequester ourselves away from the non-believing world, from engaging culture. We live on the ark. Think about it. We live on the ark, and then... We lament why the rest of the world is drowning. Withdraw from the culture. Retreat. It's warm and cozy and safe in the ark. Outside, oh, pagans, non-believers, folks who don't know God. And I mean, they, they don't even care about going to church. That, and that's a whole different story. Avoid outsiders. 
stick with insiders, retreat into the bubble. That's a familiar path taken by many well-intentioned Christians. And quite honestly, it's a tragedy for the kingdom of God. Because this is not the model that Jesus followed in his life here on earth. We thank God for that. If nothing else, it could be said that Jesus was indeed a friend of sinners. Surprise, not church people. And that's in fact what irked the most of the religious people of his day about his model of cultural engagement. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. This is the second one in, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And Mark uh, chapter 2, we're going to take a little survey just here in the Gospels to look exactly at how Jesus interacted with the culture and the approach that he took to spreading the influence of his Father's kingdom. This is Mark chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And it reads, While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and quote-unquote sinners, it says, were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 17, on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus saw it as central to his mission to spread the influence of his kingdom among non-believers. That's why he invested intentionally in relationships with those who were far from God, whose lives were broken or entangled in darkness, quote-unquote sinners. Notice, that's actually the religious people's language, sinners. And so Jesus throws it back here. He says, yeah, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Those who are broke down and far from God and think God would never accept me as I am. He never would. You see examples of this all throughout Jesus' life on this earth. He was always going out of his way to take the time to connect with people who had yet to find their way back to God. Flip over one gospel to Luke, Luke chapter 19. This is a story actually about a, a wee little man. Anybody? Zacchaeus. Oh, Zacchaeus. And a wee little man was he. Sounds like a Popeye theme. All right. Zacchaeus, as you know, well, let's just read this. Zacchaeus, uh, this is Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. And we've looked at this passage before, but it's really instructive for us because I want you to see how Jesus takes time out of his day. Not even time, but this is the essence of his ministry. Look at it. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he was vertically challenged, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he stopped the parade, and he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to, what does your version say there? Mutter. Mutter. He's gone be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save what was Lost. This is an amazing thing here, right? Literally, Jesus is in the middle of ministry. People are thronging him, and he's marching down Main Street here, and then all of a sudden he says, stop, stop. 
you in the tree. Lunch. Now. He actually invites himself over. And the thing, the scandal of this, as you know, in, in Jewish culture, tax collectors were synonymous with scum. Lower bacteria, right? They were the most reviled and despised in the entire system. They were noted for dishonesty, for graft. They were reviled, especially among church people, the religious population. Yet Jesus picks him out of a crowd and he invites himself over for a meal. Hey, what do you got? You, sir, you got, you know, do you have a ham sandwich? We're going. I want to talk. And he invites himself over, the son of God. And the people mutter, he's going to be with a sinner. And we don't know exactly what they talked about over that lunch, but something happened. When Jesus extended spiritual friendship to someone who thought, I could never, ever get close to God. But now the Son of God wants to have a nosh with me. And over lunch, he converts. And he writes his wrongs. He, everything changes. He actually gives half he owns to the poor. And Jesus rejoices. says, today, salvation has come to this house. And then he restates his mission again, right? The Son of Man has come to seek. He's not a seeker. I'm seeking him. To seek and to save what was lost. In other words... Folks, I ain't here to live on the ark, to stay in the church ghetto. Jesus says, I am here to go beyond the bubble and invest in intentional relationships with non-believers, those who are far away from God. Because my goal is to spread the influence of my Father's kingdom while I'm here. Jesus did this all the time. It was his MO. It wasn't that making time out of the day. This was the essence of his ministry. He didn't simply have an endless, you know, holy huddle with his disciples. But he intentionally sought out ways to connect meaningfully with those who were spiritually thirsty. The most telling example of this is in his interaction with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. You can flip over there if you like. We don't have time to look at the whole thing. But you know it's kind of an amazing uh, experience because I was looking at this week and it's amazing. A little detail jumped out at me. Before Jesus talks with this woman at the well, his disciples are around. And he actually sends his disciples out on an errand. (laughs) So he can have some alone time to actually make conversation with a Samaritan woman, which was a scandal in those days. She was a Samaritan, first off, one strike. She was a half-breed, considered religiously inferior, and she was a woman, second-class citizen in a very male-dominated patriarchal Jewish culture. Yet Jesus makes time to initiate a conversation with this woman when they meet at a well at midday. And if you know anything about the Middle East... It's pretty hot at midday. That's actually the one time you don't go out in public. But this woman goes out in public because she thinks no one will see me. What's going on with her? Well, Jesus makes a beeline over to her, and they have this incredible conversation. Jesus actually starts by asking her for a drink. And she says, well, I don't know if I have water to give you. And he says, actually, if you know who I was, you'd ask me for water. He says something about living water, and she's like, oh, I see you're religious. (laughs) And so she asks him some questions. You don't look at this thing about Jewish, like, religious history. But Jesus says, yeah, I'm not interested in talking religion with you. And he kind of bores down into the very real issues of her life. And he says, what? Go call your husband and come back. I, I have no uh, husband, she replies. And he says, yeah, you're, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've, um, you've, had, uh, you've had five husbands, haven't you? And, and the man you now have is, is not your husband. Ouch. <laughs> so much for the chit-chat. <laughs> Jesus goes out of his way to connect with this totally marginal person on the fringe of mainstream religious culture. He treats her with respect and he bores down into the deepest issues of her life. Asked about her marriage, says he knows about her string of broken relationships and yet he still cares and he's there to embrace her. And when his disciples return, they're shocked. They're shocked to find him talking with this, this, this woman, this, this Samaritan. But the woman's reaction is the real surprise. Because after just one conversation with the Son of God, she feels strangely 
what's the word? Known and accepted as is. She says in verse 29, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Is that the way most non-Christians feel around us? Like, man, he understands me. Boy, she really gets me, knows what my life's been about. Do most non-Christians feel understood, known, intentionally sought after, and then just radically accepted as they are in your relationships? Like Zacchaeus, her life changes too. She becomes a Christ follower, and shortly thereafter, she actually becomes the first missionary to the rest of her Samaritan village. Why? All because Jesus took the time to invest in strategic relationships with people who were far away from God. He chose not to live on the ark, but to go beyond the bubble and spread the influence of his father's kingdom. And this cost him. I I don't want to pretend like this was easy. In fact, it was one of the primary sources of the hostility that the mainstream religious leaders of Jesus' day felt towards Christ. Luke tells us in the 15th chapter, he says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. Get this. Now when Jesus is talking about your sins, my father loves you so much, he is going to wipe the slate clean. You are forgiven. You are accepted as is. You can't make your way back to God, but he accepts you. All you have to do is repent. Say, Lord, I've blown it. I'm a sinner. Forgive me. He will. Suddenly, not surprised, okay? (laughs) People whose lives are kind of broken down, war pretty dark, are starting to say, what's this about? (laughs) They're starting to crowd in on him. But verse 2 says, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, parentheses, church people, muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. The eating was a big deal. This is not like going through a Wendy's drive-thru, okay, today. You share a table with someone in ancient Jewish culture, it means, I, I see you, friend, I am with you, we have an intimacy, I trust you. And I connect with you. Even though, yeah, we may not actually be all ceremonially clean. And the religious elite did not like the fact that Jesus was spending a lot of time socializing with non-believing people. These are people who want nothing to do with temple activities. They don't like church. In fact, they got so upset, the Pharisees did, about Jesus' friendships with non-religious folks that they actually started slandering Jesus' reputation. Matthew tells us in his gospel in chapter 11, he says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This is Jesus speaking. He's actually saying, This is what the the, the accusations are levying against me because I'm spending so much time with non-religious people. That I'm a glutton, that I'm a drunkard, right? Because I'm hanging out with people, you know, of ill repute. I'm a friend of tax collectors and sinners. A friend, which is quite an accusation or... A compliment, depending on how you look at it. Because this revealed the most critical thing about Jesus' mission to this earth. Jesus loved non-believing people. Because his father loved non-believing people. And nothing would get in his way of expressing that love, of investing in relationships with them. And this is it. He expects us to do the same That's why the last point of our church family covenant reads, I commit to spreading the influence of my church by investing in friendships with non-believers. We've been working through this church family covenant. We've come to the end of it. This is the last part. It's in your bulletin. You can take a look at it. But this is one of the core pieces of what Jesus' mission was about and what our mission is about as a church. And so I'll just ask you real candidly, okay? Do you have intentional relationships with outsiders? Think about it, as Jesus did. 
Because this was central to his mission and ours as well. Seriously, can you even like name them? Can you name four of them? Right now, people who would want nothing to do with church, non-believers, forget Jesus, forget the Bible, forget this whole thing. But you have a substantive, meaningful relationship with them. Think about that. If you have a pen, in fact, let's do this. If you got a pen or a little pencil there, take it. Would you write it on your bulletin, the names of those people? What are their first names? Yell out some of the names. Give me one. George. Who? Brennan. Who, our small group leader? <laughs> write them down. Write them down there. I'm thinking myself, I'm like, okay, four people, and sadly, I'm like, it's hard to come up with. I'm like, okay, there's Phil, who, who, works, uh, who works in the same building as me. Um, he's actually, um, he knows I'm, he's over the whole thing of freaking out. They're like, I'm a pastor guy. Uh, he's, he's called me father. He's Catholic, previously Catholic. Actually, he says, I'm post-Catholic. Uh, he's like, no, but I'm like open to church and stuff. And he actually, it's neat. We have a neat relationship. You know, he, we, we talk very openly. He comes up sometimes and say, you know, I'm, I'm having difficulties, you know, balancing work and family and stuff. And, and we'll chat. Um, you know, I've invited him to church about four or five times. Still ain't showed up. Okay, it's all right. <laughs> And so I write down Phil. Um, Ron. There's Ron, who I've told you about, who cuts my hair, who's gay. And, you know, I'm the one born-againer that he's ever met who he maybe will trust. Maybe. (laughs) And then I'm thinking, like, you know, three or four, I was like, well, all right, there's this couple. I'm going to count them. Scott and Kate. That's four. Uh, there's a young couple, they just moved in two doors down from us, and uh, Colleen and I were talking with them, and, and they were like, um, they're like, so what do you do? I'm like, ah, oh, I work for like a non-profit thing. Uh, <laughs> they kept boring down on the thing, you know, like, like what kind of non-profit? Well, it's in this like white building, you know, a steeple, all right, yeah. Um, you know, and they're like, oh, no, no, no. They go, no, we actually went to, co- I went to a church in college. They go, we went to a universalist church, actually. I said, oh, okay. I said, and do you keep going, you know, still going? They go, oh, no, we haven't been to that in years. Well, why not? They go, well, I mean no offense or anything, church is not relevant. <laughs> I mean, it's nothing to do with day-to-day living. I mean, you know, I, I understand, you know, I understand you do it for a living. And again, no offense, you know. I was like, oh, it's, a, it's okay. It's all right, you know. <laughs> and so Colleen and I are going to have them over for burgers this summer and get to know them, you know, and hopefully maybe even begin illustrating the difference that faith has made in our lives. So Phil, Ron, uh, Scott, and Kate, what are your names? Look at them right now or picture them in your head. Look at those names, and I want to ask you a question. Is it just possible, just possible, that God has put you on this earth, strategically positioned you in the relationship to these people in order to reveal himself to them through you? That maybe your purpose on this earth, and I know there's a lot of, you know, talk of the purpose of our lives, you know, to make money, to, you know, realize our dreams, and you find the right mate and make somebody happy and everything, but maybe... (laughs) It's actually those people you've been keeping at arm's length. That for perhaps the first time, the love of Jesus Christ will be revealed to them through you. Paul writes in Colossians, Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. Just, just unpack that just for a second and look at what everything that Paul is implying here. We are to act strategically with outsiders, with purpose and direction. Be very wise. Think this through ahead of time. And we're to actively look for what? It begins with an O. Opportunities. And when we have those opportunities, we're to have, according to Paul, grace-filled conversations 
Not flat, kind of, you know, generalized conversation. They should actually be salty. <laughs> Not bland and nondescript, but actually provocative, creating the craving for more spiritual knowledge. When we're to live in such a way that it says that you may know how to answer everyone, what's that imply? That people are asking you what? Questions. Because how compelling a life you've lived. Wow. Think about those four relationships now. You're Ron, you're Phil, you're Scott, you're Kate. Are those relationships that you're thinking of characterized by these qualities that Paul describes in Colossians? Your, your friends even know you're a Christian. Because <laughs> it really, I mean, the way this goes is that we're pretty much polar, you know, they're polar ends of the spectrum. Some people just remain silent. Like, you know, I don't think even most of my friends even know I'm a Christian because of all those reasons you even mentioned. Or on the other end, your friends run from you because you're so outspoken and a real Christian of genius, you know? It's like, those are your two options there. Well, the challenge presented by our covenant is for each of us to cash in on those relational investments that we're making. And that doesn't mean it's all up to you. I need to say that because for much of my life, the idea of personal evangelism was very intimidating because I, felt, I thought it meant, like, this is all up to me. Oh, gosh. Not only do I have to now be friends, but now I've got to look for ways to, like, get Jesus in there and, you know, oh, man, and, and, and at its worst, I felt like a friend with an agenda. Like, you know, okay, this is what I'm going to say. This is how I'm going to, okay, hey, Jay, do you know what would happen if, like, you were run over tonight? My friends are like, what? Are you, are you threatening me? What? <laughs> oh, all right, you know, just, just forget it. I, and so, and so the, it's like, ah. Oh. But the strategy of our church family here at Liquid, folks, is not to cut you off on your own, but to help you partner in this critical task. Because it's too important to Jesus to leave it up to those with a gift for evangelism or wait for it to happen naturally, because it often doesn't. And our strategy is not very complex. It's actually quite simple. It's called invest and invite. You're already doing the hard work. You simply invest in your friendship with your coworker, your neighbor, your haircut, your teammate, whatever. And you do the hard work of showing kindness, trust, respect, grace, forgiveness, all the stuff that makes friendships meaningful. And then you simply do the unthinkable. You invite them to church. Ah, I know, I know. I expect someone coming off the balcony, ah, you know, to hopefully hear maybe about God's love for them in a way that is meaningful, relevant, and meets them where they're at as is. That's the second part of our covenant to spread the influence. You might have noticed that the second one, it says, by inviting the unchurched to our church. Show, show of hands. How many of you have actually invited a non-believer to a liquid service in the past six months? Show of hands, okay? Great. Okay, actually, hey, that's, that's fantastic. You know, all, all four of you can leave right now. That's like awesome. Go for you. Um, you can see, I mean, actually, there's more than that. But you can see that's, that's in the minority. And, and quite honestly, I understand why many don't. You know, I remember when I was a kid... You know, I invited one of my, you know, school friends to go to church with me, and he came, you know, and it was, like, real polite, and it was, like, Mission Sunday. So, like, all the flags come flying, you know, down the aisle and everything, and, you know, and this, and this guy, you know, was one of those mm-hmm kind of preachers, you know, from, like, Kenya, and he was, like, mm, ram, ramming it up, you know, and everything. It was kind of, like, cringing, and I remember, because my friend was polite, but I spent the rest of the afternoon doing one of two things, apologizing <laughs> and explaining for what, had just, what he had just experienced. Because the language that he heard was totally exclusive, like he needed a, the- a theological degree to translate. Like, what is, what is you know, imputed righteousness, this whole thing? I can't even pronounce it, whatever. 
um, you know, it, it explained it to him, or it was embarrassing. You know, of course, it had like a, you know, a drama skit, you know, and it was about like an Old Testament character, so out come everybody in the bathrobes, you know. And, every, and it's like church is often so foreign, no point of reference for people who haven't heard of God, or in, embarrassing because there's no hints of real life. Like this seems canned. Here's another reason not to invite people. You don't know what we're going to be talking about. <laughs> one guy actually grabbed me recently and he said, all right, dude, the one Sunday I bring my coworker Neil in from California, who's a cynical agnostic, you talk about tithing. <laughs> oh! I was like, are you serious? He goes, yeah. He's one time he's been here in four years. I'm like, I've spoken out of money once in four years. He's like, we're like, oh, what happened there, you know? Oh, man, I understand that. Well, as you know, we're becoming a more and more a church driven by a passion for reaching people who don't go to church. And you're actually going to be seeing some exciting changes in our strategy starting this summer that's going to make it easier to invite folks here. Because we're trying to make this a relevant environment that just meets people right where they're at with a language they understand and in a language that connects with their heart. And so our first chance to do that actually this summer is through our Da Vinci Code series and called Decoding Da Vinci. It's going to be a major outreach. Now, how many of you, we're not going to kick you out of church, how many of you have actually read the Da Vinci Code? Okay, oh, well, thank you for being honest. The five o'clock was like, no, never. Why wouldn't I read that? <laughs> I just finished it two weeks ago. It's actually very interesting. It's a page turner in my book. Um, just to give you a point of reference, you've heard of Purpose Driven Life, right? Sold about 25 million copies. Um, this has sold anyone? 45 million copies. And when it came out in paperback uh, just this spring, it sold 500,000 the first week. Another 6 million have been ordered. It's an amazing thing. And the, the big rub of the whole thing, beyond just being an interesting kind of thriller, it raises some incredible questions about Christianity and faith. Such as, yeah, where does the Bible come from? I mean, can it be trusted? You remember a few weeks ago, what just came out? The Gospel of Judas. Where would that thing come from? How come, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? What about Judas, you know? You know, all right, he's a traitor, but, you know, come on, he might have something to say. What is the deal with that? The lost gospels of Thomas, of Mary, how, how, did people pick and choose? Was there a conspiracy? I heard that the early church didn't even think Jesus was God, that he was actually, like, just considered a good teacher and human, like, for the first century. And then, like, the church made him God, deified him, so they could suppress women. That's what it's about. Yeah. Oh, it's touching some major, major hot buttons. It's raising all these compelling questions. And it's just going to get hotter because movies, the movie's coming out on May 19th, as you know, with, with Tom Hanks. And they're estimating millions of people are going to see this. And it is going to be a cultural moment. The thing everyone is talking about. I was talking to my friend Karen. She rides a train into New York every, every week. And she goes, man, on that Manhattan train, she goes, it's just like people are either reading The Da Vinci Code or Demons and Angels, the guy's first book. She goes, if I had a nickel for every time, it's like everyone's gearing up for this thing. And typically, there are two reactions to this kind of upcoming cultural moment. On one end, there's the camp that says, heresy <laughs> can serve and preserve and defend. This is a distortion, an attack on our faith. And so we need to rip it apart, criticize, mount boycotts. Colleen and I actually got a mailer that said, you know, would you pledge money because we got to kind of come against this demonic force in our culture. I was looking in Barnes and Noble, just kind of looking, doing some background research on stuff, and it was amazing because this one book, there's a whole, like, Da Vinci section, this one book has 19 other books written about it. <laughs> and the titles go along the lines like this, The Da Vinci Distortion, The Da Vinci Delusion, The Da Vinci Desecration, The Da Vinci Deception, and the subtitles. 
Basically, that's the art culture that says, culture outside, antagonistic. They're the enemy. We have to mount a counterattack, rip it apart, and then retreat into the ark. <laughs> On the other hand, I'm of the elk. What an amazing opportunity. I'm getting my hair cut by Ron, and he's like, yo, you're reading the Da Vinci Code? I love that thing. I was like, really? What did, you, what did you like about it? He said, well, I mean, he goes, it raises all sorts of questions. He goes, I mean, you're a preacher. How do, I mean, how do you even know the Bible is true? I mean, that's what you preach from. And I was like, yeah, I preach from the Bible. He goes, how do you know it's true? I go, well, I mean, you know, uh, you know Paul says, you know, all scripture is God-breathed and inspired. He goes, yeah, and where's that quote come from? I go, well, it's, you know, from the, the Bible. And he's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> he stops cutting my hair and just kind of looks like, yeah, I thought. I was like, oh, wow, yeah, wow, okay, how, hmm be prepared to give an answer for that which you believe. Are you prepared? This is an amazing cultural moment where folks are going to be asking what you believe and why you believe it. Make the most of every opportunity so that you'll know how to answer everyone. And so the question is, will we know how to respond? Well, we've given you some great ways to do that. In your bulletin, you can pull this one out. We've given you a uh, miniature Mona Lisa suitable for framing. Everyone get that one? All right. This is an oversized invite card that we've put in your bulletin as a sample because June will be our major outreach effort towards non-believing friends and neighbors as we launch a message series entitled Decoding Da Vinci, okay, Unlocking the Code. Four weeks of high-interest material. We'll be looking at film clips, art, doing some historical analysis, research really to answer these questions that everyone is asking. You can see there, kind of listed on here, were Jesus and Mary Magdalene married? I mean... Was Leonardo trying to tell us? I mean, does, did you have any, has anyone looked at the Last Supper? John looks like a lady. All right? It's like, it's like, it's like that was the original of the Aerosmith song. John looks like a lady. It's really interesting. You go, look at this thing, man. It's, it's, it's great. But we're putting in your hands these invite cards so you can literally begin cashing in on the investments you've been making. And here's our challenge. Would you consider inviting those four people? Would you consider taking the risk of putting this into their hands, perhaps even saying, hey, do you want to go see that movie? Going out to dinner afterwards and saying, hey, would you, would you be interested in coming to church? We're doing this thing. We're doing this whole thing on Da Vinci, answering. I mean, I, it's got all sorts of questions. It's got me questioning and asking, how, what do I believe and why do I believe it? And invite them on June 2nd to our Da Vinci Code kickoff. That's literally our church evangelism strategy. It's pretty simple. It's not complicated. Invest and invite. We want to keep it simple and partner with each of you in reaching lost folks for the kingdom of God. You do the investing, that relationship building, and you simply invite them to our church. And you can do that with a degree of confidence because you know we're the kind of church that is grace-driven. That's accepting of people just as they are. I mean, our slogan, right? Look at it in the front of our uh, program here, right? Come as you are. Come thirsty. Just like the Samaritan woman. It doesn't matter what a wreck you've made of your life. We're not here to arm twist. We're a safe place to ask questions. There's actually not a lot of easy, just pat answers in the Christian life. Just honest discussion. We're going to tell you about the hope that some of us have found in Jesus Christ. And how he's changing our lives. And you don't have to worry about what we're talking about. I mean, this current series is for our church family. Like, like this. I mean, we're discussing, you know, what it means to belong, like, as family members. But this, this series is for outsiders. That's the third part of our missional statement. It says we pursue intimacy with God, community with insiders, but influence with outsiders. And we'll be talking about a relevant topic of natural interest to them, answering questions that may be on their mind, and hopefully 
putting the power of God and his word on display for them, maybe for the first time. And many are helping uh, make this possible. I mean, it's a neat thing. Our, my, my hope is, honestly, that we'll, you'll invite four people and maybe one will come. <laughs> it would be an amazing thing if one came. Because if one came, can you imagine this place swelled to the gills with like 750 people, okay? That's what we're praying for. That's what we want to see happen. And you can see we're already practicing for it. We're kind of rolling out the red carpet with our hospitality teams. Can we give it up for hospitality this week? A phenomenal job. Make your lounge downstairs inviting for newcomers. But we're going to have other needs going forward. We're probably going to need a parking team, right? It could be a disaster. <laughs> we expect this to be extremely popular. And it's going to probably have to bring a huge crush of visitors. And therefore, we're going to do the unthinkable to church people. Make you give up your parking spot, right? And actually, we're going to ask many of you to actually park across the street at the Jewish Center, at the Chabad, in order to make room for our guests. Invest and invite. Sacrifice so that more can come in. That's the essence of relational evangelism, folks. And it's also part of what it means to truly belong to Liquid as your church home. You're outward focused because our church, our body is outward focused. You're on mission because we're on mission. And we're on mission because our leader, Jesus Christ, gave his life for the same mission. So are you with me? Who are you going to invite? At work, in your neighborhood, at the gym, at school? It's kind of funny because it's, you know, most churches typically like wind down for the summer. You know, it's like everyone goes on vacay. Like the strategy is just like, you know, lay low, you know, when everyone comes back. But, but we're doing the opposite. We sense like this is the season. God is asking us to step it up in terms of reaching out to those who need him most. And I'm excited about it. I can't wait to see the new faces, the friends that you're going to bring. But I'm also excited about the final aspect, the last one of what it means to spread the influence of our church. Because this is about planting seeds. This is not just about like, hey, bring them to church. That's one way to do that. But it's about planting seeds and seeing what God's spirit will grow. Because there, there are some folks, quite honestly, who will never be caught dead in a church, no matter how much you invest in them. Right, Erica? Your friend Jill, she's like, I, no, I don't think she'll come, man. No, she, there's no way. She's just never coming. Ter lots of woundedness, not going to do it. That's fine. But more importantly, inviting church, folks to church is not the only way to evangelize or express what the message of God's love in Christ is all about. Because, in fact, a lot of times, words fail. And something more powerful is needed. Something called actions. And that's the final aspect of spreading the influence of our church. By reaching out to serve the community. You guys know Rick Warren, Purpose Driven Life Guy. Saw this great, great interview he had with Larry King. And he made this great observation. He said, um, Larry, you know, the Apostle Paul talks about the church of Jesus being, being the body of Christ. So we're a body. But, but the way the world sees the church of Jesus actually as a body is as a body comprised of actually just one organ, a giant mouth. <laughs> we talk a lot about what we're against, what we don't like, you know, who's in, who's out, blah, 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 blah. Larry, it's time to reconnect the hands and the feet to the body of Christ and go and wash feet and serve we're known for what we're against, what we're for. A lot of talk, but little action. And that's what the final piece of our strategy about becoming a church of influence is all about. By reaching out to serve the community in practical ways. It's called servant evangelism. It's just expressing the love of God in tangible ways that meet people's needs. Now, we laid a foundation for this last summer. If you remember at last uh, summer's Gay Pride Outreach in June, how many of you were at that? Anybody uh, here? Okay, wow, okay, we've had a lot of turnover. All right, <laughs> that's all right. We, if you remember, if you were here last June, we gave away over 10,000 bottles of free water 
at the New Jersey State Gay Pride Day in Asbury Park. It was awesome. We canceled services here. We trucked it out down there. We bought 10,000 bottles of water. It was, it was great. It was like a scorching 96 degrees, if you recall. And we witnessed the power of giving, very simple, giving away free water to the gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender community. And it was like shocking. It was like, no, we're not, we're not here to process it. We're just giving water. It was like, no, you're here for something. The power of grace and love showered on people who normally see us, quite honestly, as enemies. And we, and we displayed that in, in a shocking twist of events. It's actually possible to extend kindness and friendship to those with whom we don't morally agree. Just as Jesus did as he lunched with taxmen and prostitutes. There was a desire in our community to show a different face of Christianity, right? There's Todd and his co-worker Cheryl. Remember that, Todd? That was kind of a freaky thing, right? Todd there wearing his liquid shirt there, and he ran into Cheryl, who's wearing a big pink cowboy hat, and, and Cheryl was like, Todd, what are you doing here? He's like, I'm with her church. She's like, you're in a church? And he's like, yeah, what are you doing here? You're in the parade? Whoa, there's like this moment, you know, kind of like, whoa, talk about a moment. It was the coolest thing opening up this conversation between these two co-workers who never previously knew that. But it was an amazing thing because it had tremendous lasting impact. Many of us had deep and meaningful conversations with people who asked, they, they said, they said, why are you doing this? And our answer actually was not complicated. It was, too, was very simple. Because Jesus came to serve, and I'm serving him by serving you. That's it. No strings attached. Out of that simple act of service and grace, there's lasting impressions and, and fruit. Colleen and I are still friends with John, John our friend, friend John. Remember that guy who's kind of the, the big, big bouncer there and everything? We got to know him everything. We've been out a couple times for dinner. He's coming over actually next month for a little barbecue and stuff. But the power of that, a year later, of that simple act of kindness, offered no strings attached, no agenda, no tracks to pass out, just kindness and love towards a community that typically expects condemnation and shrill rhetoric from the church. It changed a lot of attitudes about Christianity and what our faith is all about. And most significantly, it changed many of us. Well, this summer, we're going to do a similar thing. Sunday, July 30th is the date to mark down on your calendar because we're once again canceling all liquid services and having a church-wide free market outreach. We've put this in your bulletin as well. Does everyone have this? You can see the pink flamingos on the top, right? This time, we're not going down the shore, but we're going to the northern New Jersey city of Morristown. How many of you noticed, by the way, yesterday, beautiful day, all the garage sales? Was that like just nuts? It was like, sun's out, get rid of my junk. You know, it's like, the nice weather comes out, and everyone wants to sell their stuff, so you see flea markets popping up everywhere. Well, here's the deal. This isn't a flea market, it's a free market. What's, what's the difference? Well, think about it. What happens at a flea market, right? What's a flea market about? People bring their junk, right? And then they overprice it, hoping to get something, you know, for it. Well, what happens at a free market? Just the opposite. People don't bring their junk but bring their best. And they don't charge for it. They give it away to those in need for free. Pink flamingos for 10 bucks? No, at a free market, just the opposite. Our outreach is designed to bless those who need quality items but can't afford them. From baby clothes to furniture, we're bringing our best and gifting it to our low-income neighbors for free. No strings attached. We'll bring our best and give it away. Just a chance to express God's love in a tangible way. So save your stuff, baby clothes, kids' toys, furniture, bikes, electronics, you name it, we'll give it away. Instead of selling it on eBay, give a gift to those in need. That's a great example because I was thinking about it earlier this spring. I have this killer 
um, mountain bike, dual suspension. Back in the day, man, I had it together. I'm like turning 35 next week, it's all over. You know, it's actually, I have two kids, that's why it's all over, because I had this dual suspension thing, and now the kid's seat doesn't fit on the thing. So I gotta ride Colleen's, you know? It's this big granny bike with a big granny gel seat, you know? We're going down the thing, and so I'm like, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna eBay the bike, call because it's actually still worth something. I'm like, probably worth between three, 500 bucks. I checked it out on eBay and everything. But then I got thinking about this out of our series on money and debt. Yeah, I could sell that bike, get three to $500, and then upgrade to the titanium roadster. And then I started thinking, actually, what if, what if I clean that bike up? What if I, got, what if I actually paid to get it tuned up? What if, what if I got new tires and gave it away to someone who could really use it, like, like one of those immigrant workers? in Morristown, who you actually will see out on Route 10 peddling at 12 at night when they get off their dishwashing job, or as a busboy. I mean, my bike represents leisure and just fun to me, but it could be a windfall to someone truly in need of just everyday transportation. What would happen? I don't sell it to get me more stuff, but really cleaned up and gave my best, no strings attached, I won't take a dime for it. It'd be a gift and give it away to simply but powerfully demonstrate one thing. There is a God who cares deeply for you. And so do his people. That's what it means to express God's love in a practical way. In 1 John, he writes, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words and tongue but with actions and in truth. This is a chance to put the love of God into action, not just give lip service to it. And it's so powerful because when it comes to no strings attached giving, people literally ask, I mean, why, why why would you do this? Why would you take your baby clothes that you're going to put in a hefty bag and just, you know, kind of haul off, you know, to the dumpster or whatever? Why would you have them mended and pressed and label them and actually write a little note like, oh, this is, this is, the, this is the outfit I brought our little girl home from in the hospital. You put it in the pocket and you're, and you're delighted to give it away. We've been talking about how this church is constructed like a home, right? This is our foyer. We want to invite people in the kitchen, the, the small groups, and, and, you know, to know one another. That's not the end goal, folks. The end goal is to end up in the most important room in the house, and that's the front porch. The front porch is where we go outside our church walls to serve our neighbors. So the question is, are you in? Are you in with that? I mean, the baby clothes, furniture, kids' toy, electronics, no broken stuff, just our best. Now, we're going to have more details as we get closer to the date, but we'll need many volunteer leaders to pull this thing off because it's going to take a lot of organization and care to do it well. So I'm just giving you a brief kind of sketch of what we're up to this summer, spreading the influence of Jesus Christ two ways, through outreach that brings people into the church for relevant teaching about hot topic issues of history, culture, and faith, and also going outside church walls to meet people right where they're at, in their neighborhoods, in a way that meets their practical needs. It's a question that I have for you. Can you count on you to be a part of this? Because that's what it means to belong to this church family. We, we were so encouraged last week um, by the initial response to our first membership brunch upcoming next Saturday. Um, all told, We'll likely have over 100 people attend and make the commitment to put down some roots this spring 
and make Liquid Church their spiritual home. And so the question is, how about you? That was kind of neat for us. We're actually kind of running out of space. You'll have a second chance to do that tonight after the service. Again, we've put the uh, sign-up sheets up here if you are interested. And I know this is a big deal because it's like, ah, commitment. <laughs> but the idea of being a part of something that's bigger than you, bigger than all of us together, well, God will have to show up if this thing is not going to be a total disaster. I hope you will be part of it. I hope you'll sign up. I hope you'll become a member of our church. We're tight on space, and we can only do this one more night. This is the last sign-ups. We'll likely have another one, by the way, in August if you can't make this one. But this is what our church family is all about. We pursue three vital relationships. Intimacy with God. We build community with one another. And we spread the influence of Christ's love to those outside the faith. To me, there's nothing more exciting than when you align yourself in the cause of something that's not about you, but about the people who aren't here yet. That's the amazing thing about the church. It's the only organization in the entire world that's supposed to exist to meet the needs of its non-members, the people who aren't even here yet, who are just finding their way back to God. That's something I can give my life to, because it's bigger than me, it's bigger than you, and it'll take our whole family together as we follow the lead of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope you'll join us. What are you doing this summer? Are you in? Think about it. Pray about it. Let's do that. Stand for prayer. Lord Jesus, I do thank you that um, we're not the end users of the gospel, Lord. Um, you didn't come, Lord, just to save us and to get us into the ark, although you did do that, Lord, and we thank you for it. We thank you for salvation through Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins. But I thank you, Lord, that you've invited us to partner with you in this mission, to proclaim your love and your goodness to the next generations, Lord, for people who feel like, gosh, I could never go to church because they'd never accept me. God would never accept me. Lord, that's a distortion. Jesus, you came, you broke down all the walls of hostility, Lord, between man and God, Lord, between one another, and you've saved us. I pray that grace would just kind of drench into our, our bones, Lord, as we prepare for this free market outreach, that we could give in meaningful ways to people who have huge needs, Lord. Would you give by your Holy Spirit us the courage, Lord, to invite people to find out what you're all about, Lord Jesus. We're praying, Lord. We're praying that you're going to use these little seeds that we're planting and just reap a huge harvest. And we're going to have to give you credit for it and give you great glory because it's not our efforts. But just, um, Lord, bless our, our, our meager attempts, Lord, to... Uh, to follow you, Jesus, the way you gave your life. Can we do it just in a couple small ways? Would you honor that, Lord? We love you and we thank you. We worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen.